my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today I'm with Tokopa Turner. She's written a really beautiful book called Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home. Tokopa Turner is a Canadian writer, teacher, and dream worker who blends the mystical tradition of Sufism with a Jungian approach to dreams. In 2001, she founded the Dream School, from which hundreds of students have since graduated. Sometimes called a midwife of the psyche, Tokopa's work focuses on restoring the feminine, reciprocity with nature, honoring grief, ritual, and making beauty. She lives on a small island in the Salish Sea of British Columbia. So, hi, Tokopa. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I think we start at the beginning I mean belonging to me is probably up there with um, I don't know with the most most important subject words because our homesickness inner and outer seems to be so profound so um, I'll, I'll quote a phrase from you in the beginning of the book. Belonging is like building a natural bridge on a dangerous river. I'm wondering what that, that evokes in you. this 
story so amazing. And um, you can look up some videos of these beautiful bridges and, and images because they're really worth seeing. But it occurred to me that the metaphor was so perfect for the quest for belonging because we find ourselves in a sense of separation, of alienation, where we feel stranded on one side of a dangerous river. And there's something on the other side that we long for, that we want to connect with, but we don't know how to get there. And so I love this image of the living bridge because it suggests to us that belonging is not something that you, you know, you search for your whole life and then maybe find it, but it's something that requires a competency, a skill, a practice, and that that practice also has to be passed down through the generations in order to be picked up for the young ones, uh, by the young ones who are growing up around us. So belonging as a skill of weaving that bridge out of separation uh, back into intimacy with our lives and with each other and with the natural world. Yes, because um, longing, I mean longing, belonging, (laughs) (laughs) has so much to do with participation. It's... uh, we think that uh, uh, perhaps belonging is our birthright, which in a way it is, but actually it's a building of relationship. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think, um, you know, when you look to uh, the few indigenous cultures that have remained intact around the world, their sense of belonging for the most part is is very much a part of every day and it's really only us in modern society who and in the western world who have lost whatever that set of skills or practices really are and so i do believe that it's something that we have in our culture missed receiving our inheritance how can we how can we be in touch with our belonging when most of us in some sense are in exile like your polish grandmother my polish mother and here we are in in north america how do you can you weave exile and belonging? Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful to know that we have some of um, <laughs> similar origins. And um, so this is a big question, you know, and I think the first thing that we have to do is really enter into the wound. Because until we can understand the source of our alienation, of our displacement, of our exile, until we can truly understand its dimensionality, I don't think we can begin to repair it. And um, so you're pointing out that we um, certainly have this 
intergenerational displacement. Mm -hmm. Um, And most people can relate to that, even Europeans, because, you know, whether we come from the lineage of the African diaspora or whether we come from uh, refugees like our people who uh, ran away from war to find a safe place to live. Many people have that story. Or whatever our reason is for being um, away from our original land, the land of our origin, of our people's origin, we um, carry, we are displaced people. And so that is certainly a huge piece that has to be looked at. And also, I think there are other reasons for our exile. A huge one is the way that um, we focus our values in Western culture. The things we value are very different than they once were in the old ways. So there's the cultural alienation that we feel. And then there's that other layer, which is the personal. And so we all have our personal stories. And in those personal stories contain moments of soul loss. And those moments of soul loss essentially split us off from the wholeness of who we are. And we have to look at those as well. So there are these three layers, um, and each have different um, gates to navigate through for us to truly understand and make an encounter with the grief and the loss of each of those places before we can really build a sense of belonging. You speak about the death mother. And so I was thinking and feeling that it's such a such a paradox. I mean, you will tell our listeners what what you what you mean by the death mother, but I will just finish this this part. It's so incredibly poignant that uh, some of us came from the womb of uh, of a very unstable mother, and the womb is probably the most intimate place there is, and then we are we are sent into exile as little children, exile from the love of our mothers. How do we return from that to the country of ourselves? mother was coined originally by Marie-Louise von Franz, who was the great um, partner in this Jungian work with Carl Jung. And she came up with this name for the archetype of this Medusa-like mother figure who possesses certain women and um, this archetype is uh, was then developed later by Marion Woodman, also a Jungian analyst. And she went into much greater depth describing what it is like to have the deaf mother, say, in an outside form in your own mother or grandmother, but then to be possessed oneself by the deaf mother who campaigns for 
our annihilation, really, mm-hmm. from the inside out. And so when we see this in a mother figure, this could look like um, uh, sharp disapproval, criticism, the denial of our impulse to create the um, the meanness and cruelty, perhaps even to the point of wishing us dead. And this is a difficult subject to bring up because in our world, we have such a huge emphasis on the positive mother archetype, right? In fact, it's really the only one we see an example of in the world. We see the good mother, the nurturing mother, the kind mother, the generous mother. And we never see the shadow side, even though many of us actually experience it. And the problem with this one-sided archetype of the mother is that it actually gives power to the deaf mother to thrive both in the outside world and also in her inner life because she's not being acknowledged. Mm. And so I I felt really called to continue the lineage of writing and exploration on the deaf mother because because it was certainly, you know, I tell a lot of my own story in the book, as as you know, and um, I grew up with a mother who definitely was possessed by the deaf mother, and the influence of that was so crushing for me as a young person that learning how to rehabilitate a positive mother has been a lifelong endeavor for me. And now that I've begun to speak about that in the open, I've had so many women approach me and say, you know, thank you for acknowledging this phenomenon because nobody is speaking about it. Yes, I think it's important to speak about that because I uh, I often meet another woman who has a certain, seems like she's carrying a certain pain and within minutes we establish with a wink that we had the same mother. And uh, and, and it, it, it creates a homecoming between us. Because there, there's an exile in not recognizing that. Mm. Mm, very much so. You can really feel isolated with such an experience because everywhere in the world is projected this image of the good mother. And it does a disservice to both the child, the daughter or the son, but it also does a disservice to the mother because if you yourself are possessed by this archetype of um, anger, rage, uh, dismissal, criticism, uh, knowing how to understand its roots and to pull those roots out has to begin with an acknowledgement that it exists in the first place. And so what um, I do in the book is I explore the myth of Medusa. And this was so fascinating for me because... I looked into Medusa's past, and though we see Medusa um, only in this very threatening version of herself where she has a head of serpents and with one glance can turn your whole body to stone, which is exactly the M.O. 
of the death mother, right? Mm -hmm. She can look at you and raise her eyebrow and suddenly everything in your body is paralyzed. And I learned that before that, she was actually a beautiful maiden and she had a very powerful relationship with her sisters. And it turns out she was actually raped by Poseidon. And not only that, but when this happened, her own sister, because she was the daughter of Zeus, but her own sister, um, Athena, actually betrayed her and cast this spell upon her so she would become this Gorgon, this monster. And so what I find so liberating about this myth is that Medusa actually had something happen to her life which broke her in this irreparable way. And her rage actually has validity. And so even in working with the archetype that has been in my own body, it's that thing when the death mother is internalized because that's what happens to us when we have a mother like that on the outside. It Every time we try to take a step into the world with our creativity or with our expression, she stops us dead in our tracks and we can't move and we have so much invalidation that it turns into depression or lethargy or exhaustion or anxiety. But what if we trace that back to the roots and find a place where the true expression of the feminine was in our family line discouraged and violence was enacted upon it that turned our own mothers into what they became. And can that then bring us into a place of compassion which can help to dissolve some of that rage? You work with dreams and uh, you're an explorer of dreams. You explore dreams with others. Perhaps you would speak about the, uh, the place of dreams and how dreams can guide us into a more safe state of belonging. Mm. Yes, well, dreams are my great passion. And um, even though I had been working with dreams for more than 20 years, it wasn't until the topic of belonging possessed me (laughs) um, about six or seven years ago that I realized that if you could boil down all of the work that I have been undertaking with dreams, it all comes down to belonging because... What we're doing, first of all, I'd like to say that the way that I think about dreams is that dreams are really nature, naturing through us. Wow. So in the, in the same way that a tree expresses itself with fruits or a bush gives flowers, that dreams are produced through us. They are the fruits of us. And as such there is an inclination deep in the heart of that nature 
towards harmony, towards the um, needs of the larger ecosystem in which we are embedded. And so the images that are produced in our dreams, even though, you know, we often don't understand them, it's because we have lost the ability to just understand that language. The truth is, it's our mother tongue, stories, images, symbols, unconstrained by where we live, what our language is, what our gender is, everyone dreams, and there's we find so many things in common with people from around the world because we're all dreaming similar patterns. Why? Because that is the way of nature, patterns. Mm-hmm. And so when we work with dreams, we this is the first place where the alienated self will appear. And I call these the refugee aspects of the self because... We, through, through the things we were talking about before, through those moments of soul loss in our personal lives or through the loss, through the um, exile that we experience in our culture around which things are um, acceptable and which things are devalued or the losses that we feel across our generational lines, those things are become like split-off aspects of ourself. And when we have a dream, those things come back to be welcomed into belonging with us. I had this dream today. I saw this movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's one of the Supreme Court justices here in, in the United States. And and I had this dream in essence, it was very long, but in essence, people were asking me, well, what are they deciding here at the Supreme Court? What, uh, what did she bring in front of the Supreme Court? And I said, well, it's a, it's a situation of mine where uh, I took too many days off, and so they have to decide if I can still be a woman. <laughs> That was so. That was so funny. Oh, so, what do you make of that? Well, that the can the that this woman uh, has done a, a lot of uh, really good work for uh, contributing to um, restoring the uh, social mind to the fact that. Uh, that women are magnificent, important beings, and uh, that I haven't done the conventional walk as a woman, and uh, so the the Supreme Court had to decide <laughs> whether I, yeah, it's anyway. Back to you. I just thought it was. Um, I had this, uh, because I knew I was going to meet with you, I had this very long, detailed, wonderful dream. (laughs) That's so great, but I I love the theme of your dream because this whole controversy that has to be decided at the level of the Supreme Court is whether or not it's okay to take time (laughs) off, you know? And I, I actually think that that is a huge 
about restoring our relationship with the feminine is is about validating the times of non-action in our lives, those times where we take off from the work and we're not accomplishing massive great things, but those times where we're actually dormant or fallow. And um, that's a really great example of how all of our cultural values are placed on being productive and making huge strides and contributions, whereas not, I remember once I was, I had been working as an executive for a record company, actually, back in the day, Uh a different life, and uh, it was very much a, a workaholic kind of position, you know, working seven days a week. And um, and then the company went bankrupt, and suddenly I found myself without an identity, and it was a very, it was a dark night of the soul for me, which lasted a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, about six weeks into being unemployed, somebody in my family said to me that they thought my not working was actually immoral. And I remember being so shocked by that language that that to not work is immoral. But I think that was very indicative of where we stand as a culture that we have so much, we carry so much judgment about not doing. So actually, it does tie into the book because I have a chapter called Tending the Inner Well. And um, this is all about restoring our relationship to the inner life, which to the outside looks like not accomplishing anything. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I want to note um, it was uh, it was sweet because I got all shy, thinking, "Oh, wait, wait, this is not about me. This is this is about her." <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it was just the perfect dream to share. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, well, I'll pick a phrase. I've got lots of pages of notes here. I'll pick a phrase that I got from your book. The world needs your rebellion. Which kind of ties into the dream? Can can we be can we be a real person if we're a rebel? Mm. Yeah, you know the reason why I say that is because rebellion is really discouraged in us from the youngest age possible, especially at that age around twelve to 14 years old, where we actually naturally, a lot of rebellious energy comes up in us. And a lot of indigenous and tribal cultures will mark that time with a rite of passage. And it's that moment in a young person's life where the tables are turned So no longer are you being raised, but it's that moment where the elders say, what do you have to bring to this conversation? How are we doing with things? And that's the moment where the young person says, I don't agree with this or that. And those disagreements are so healthy and sacred because they show us where our structures or where our family 
family or where our systems are outdated and need to be renewed. And um, and yet in our culture, we do a terrible job of this. You know, we pathologize rebellion in young people. And the result of that is the young person never gets to honor the instinct of their disagreements. And of course, that carries on into the rest of our lives where we are discouraged from having a relationship to our disagreements, to our conflict, to our um, uh, um, raising of discussion when something is not working. And as a result, a lot of our systems and families just kind of remain in an unhealthy stasis where they are not living, breathing forms of belonging. They become what I call in the book false belonging. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when I say rebellion, that we need that and that it's a sign of health, is to say without it, we would be trapped in false belonging. And actually, when you have a disagreement, when you have conflict come up in whatever your situation is, whether it's a relationship or whether it is your church or whether it is your workplace, and if that disagreement is persistent in you, then it needs to be spoken. And if your form of belonging is a healthy form of belonging, it will allow your disagreement to be included in the conversation and to change the way things are shaped. And I should just add, if it isn't allowed into inclusion, then often what happens is some kind of break, right? Because if we're not... I, I So I actually think that belonging is not static at all, but dynamic. And that these periods of disagreement are very healthy if the form of belonging is healthy. And if not, and you raise your disagreement or conflict into the circle, if it's not open to being changed, then there's often some kind of break some kind of exile that will happen, which can be extremely painful. You say the intactness of belonging must be broken. Yes. Yes. I'm thinking I I really want to hear you speak about the relationship between the earth, our home, the natural world, and our own belonging. Yes. Well, you know, that we even consider these things exclusive of each other is madness. Mm. And we have separated ourselves so much from the rest of nature that we don't even know that we are nature. And we treat nature as if it were a beautiful backdrop against which the more important human drama plays out. And yet, this disconnection is resulting in us treating the earth as if she is our resource to be plundered and made a profit on. And of course, 
the result of a dis- disconnection has terrifying consequences, and we really find ourselves in the midst of what Joanna Macy calls the sixth mass extinction, because we are losing our so hundreds of species every day, and the pollution of our skies and our seas is so extreme, and of course climate change and all of these things combined. And so it's no wonder that we as human beings feel such a sense of alienation because we have lost this very central understanding, which is that thing that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, mm-hmm. interbeing, which is this understanding, this innate understanding that we are all connected. And when even one of us suffers with, say, toxic overload, all of us suffer. And so this is why I think we have this uh, extremely sharp rise in autoimmune diseases in the world right now, because there are those of us which are like canaries in the coal mine. You know, we are experiencing the overload of toxic pollution in the world. And so um, I, you know, I think it's very important that we find a way back into relationship with the natural world. And there are, of course, many, many ways to do this. And I explore a bunch of them in the book. But I don't think we can consider the quest of our own belonging in a narcissistic way anymore. It, if, if we are to feel a sense of belonging, it has to be inclusive of everyone's belonging. And that's the whole point of belonging, right? It's not just a personal thing that, you know, you may or may not feel in your life, but it is all of us belonging with each other. And when I say that, I mean not just the two leggeds <laughs> mm-hmm. but the tall standing people and the flying people and the sea underwater people and so on and so forth. So all that to say that I think we have to practice uh, coming back into relationship with the natural world. And only when we do that can we begin to really understand our place in the family of things. Yes, it seems to me at this point that feeling, feeling deeply that we are one with that we are issued from the earth is uh, is the only place where we can feel true belonging. Mm-hmm. You know, I was uh, driving back from our little town yesterday and I had the radio turned on and the news came on and I heard this story about how one third of the elephants in Botswana, in Africa, had been decimated by poachers for their tusks. And I was undefended in that moment, and I burst into tears. Mm -hmm. And I 
normal part of being alive right now because it's just so overwhelming. And it's anything less than being so moved, as you say, of feeling that grief or of experiencing that um, the apocalypse that is happening all around us, this is what Michael Mead calls the slow apocalypse, mm-hmm. is to have an anesthetized heart. And this isn't a criticism because a lot of us have an anesthetized heart. And this is because we have been so, um, our senses have become so dulled by the addictions that we push in our culture, like television and technology and food and drugs and sex and all of those forms of addictions um, to keep us distracted from what I think is a very natural impulse to feel what's going on in the world around us. Let's go to... Abracadabra. Abracadabra. Abra. I say it in French, but they're the same. <laughs> Abra, abracadabra. Abracadabra. <laughs> I create as we spoken. And uh, the process of spelling the way and... Uh, our lives are stories, and why are these stories? Why do these stories matter? Yeah, I mean, I think we as humans are storytellers. There's this wonderful quote by Barry Lopez, who who says, the, the novelist, who says that um, we are pattern makers, and the story, I won't get the quote just right, but something like, this: um, if we can change the pattern of our story, it has the ability to bring someone who has been broken up off his knees into life again. And so... I think so many of us just feel we can feel victimized by our story or we can feel as if our story is just the way that it is and there's nothing that we can do about it. But one of the things we learn about in dream work is that actually it's very possible to influence the story we have for our lives. So um, I talk a lot about restorying restoring our lives and this is a process of going into those places of soul loss acknowledging them grieving what needs to be grieved in those places and then beginning to restory ourselves as the hero or heroine of that pattern who has now emerged and been shaped by what has happened to us and even who is moving towards redemption. So looking to find what the patterns are that we carry and then finding a way to restory 
at the events of our lives, not so we wish for them to be any different than they are, but to really welcome them into belonging in our lives so that we can validate the person we have become as a result of those events happening to us. What is reciprocity with nature? Well, you know, <laughs> you know the um, this word dream work. I think a lot of people think of dream work as uh, interpreting your dreams, oh. but I think of dream work as a reciprocal process where we are we receive a dream, but then we have to respond to what we have received with our actions or with our lives. And so dream work for me, because as I was saying earlier, I think of dreams as nature. Um, the broader definition of dream work, as I understand it, is a kind of reciprocity between this world and the world behind this world, between the seen and the unseen. And so this relationship can be carried directly to nature as well. So nature is incredibly generous. We, you know, I could step out of doors right now and I would feel the warmth of the sun on my skin. I could pluck an apple from my little apple tree, which is just heavy with fruits right now. Or I could breathe in some of the late autumn flowers, which are still flowering. And all of these things are a generosity that I'm receiving. But if I am in a good relationship with the land where I live, with the place where I live, then I might also tend to that place by giving water to those um, flowering bushes or uh, making sure to prune the apple tree so that it can bear more fruits. So there is a kind of reciprocity that we can have with nature, which involves us um, being responsible for and protective of those places where we live and beyond. So here we live right on the Salish Sea, and um, this is a very uh, troubled place right now because our governments are trying to put in pipelines through this very pristine wilderness. And when you put in oil pipelines, they're very, they have this propensity to, um, to break and to spill thousands of gallons of oil into the water. And not only that, but they create a lot of noise pollution, which is so disorienting and damaging to the whales and to the fish populations. And so we have lots of people here on the coast and on this island who are activists to protect the sea. And um, so I think reciprocity means not only literally giving back to the land where you live, but also protecting it because it is a kind of voiceless other. It doesn't have a voice. And so we have to raise our voices on its behalf. Talk about reach, reach in and out the window and 
in closing, what is the most loving thought you can leave us with? May you know your own heart as the true throne of belonging. And when you go into the world and you find yourself worried about whether you will belong there or not, maybe consider reversing your definition of belonging as something that is yours to give. And look around into the room you're standing in or into the environment you're in and think, where can I offer a shelter of belonging to this other who might not have a voice, who might not feel a sense of being sheltered. Thank you so, so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Joanna, and thank you to Jose for organizing the technical side of things. Good, good. Good.